Chapter Twenty Two of Mr. Stanfast by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two: The Summons Comes for Mr. Stanfast. I slept for one and three quarters hours that night, and when I awoke, I seemed to emerge from deeps of slumber which had lasted for days. That happens sometimes after heavy fatigue and great mental strain. Even a short sleep sets up a barrier between past and present, which has to be elaborately broken down before you can link on with what has happened before. As my wits groped at the job, some drops of rain splashed on my face through the broken roof. That hurried me out of doors. It was just after dawn, and the sky was piled with thick clouds, while a wet wind blew up from the southwest. The long-prayed-for break in the weather seemed to have come at last. A deluge of rain was what I wanted, something to soak the earth and turn the roads into watercourses and clog the enemy transport, something above all to blind the enemy's eyes. For I remembered what a preposterous bluff it all had been, and what a piteous broken handful stood between the Germans and their goal. If they knew, if they only knew, they would brush us aside like flies. As I shaved, I looked back on the events of yesterday as on something that had happened long ago. I seemed to judge them impersonally, and I concluded that it had been a pretty good fight. A scratch force, half of it dog-tired, and half of it untrained, had held up at least a couple of fresh divisions. But we couldn't do it again, and there were still some hours before us of desperate peril. When had the Corps said that the French would arrive? I was on the point of shouting for Hamilton to get Wake to rig up Corps headquarters, when I remembered that Wake was dead. I had liked him, and greatly admired him, but the recollection gave me scarcely a pang. We were all dying, and he had only gone on a stage ahead. There was no morning strafe, such as had been our usual fortune in the past week. I went out of doors, and found a noiseless world under the lowering sky. The rain had stopped falling, the wind of dawn had lessened, and I feared that the storm would be delayed. I wanted it at once to help us through the next hours of tension. Was it in six hours that the French were coming? No, it must be four. It couldn't be more than four, unless somebody had made an infernal muddle. I wondered why everything was so quiet. It would be breakfast-time on both sides, but there seemed no stir of man's presence in that ugly strip half a mile off. Only far back in the German hinterland I seemed to hear the rumour of traffic. An unslept and unshaven figure stood beside me, which revealed itself as Archie Roylance. "'Been up all night,' he said cheerfully, lighting a cigarette. "'No, I haven't had breakfast. The skipper thought we'd better get another anti-aircraft battery up this way, and I was superintendent of the job. He's afraid of the Hun getting over your lines and spying out the nakedness of the land. For you know we're uncommon naked, sir. Also—and Archie's face became grave— the Hun's pourin' divisions down on this sector. As I judge, he's blowin' up for a thunderin' big drive on both sides of the river. Our lads yesterday said all the country back of Peronne was lousy with new troops. And he's getting his big guns forward, too. You haven't been troubled with them yet, but he has got the roads mended, and a devil of a lot of new light railways, and any moment we'll have the 5.9 saying good morning. Pray heaven you get relieved in time, sir. I take it there's not much risk of another push this morning. I don't think so. The Boche took a nasty knock yesterday, and he must fancy we're pretty strong after that counter-attack. 
I don't think he'll strike till he can work both sides of the river, and that'll take time to prepare. That's what his fresh divisions are for. But remember, he can attack now if he likes. If he knew how weak we were, he's strong enough to send us all to glory in the next three hours. It's just that knowledge that you fellows have got to prevent his getting. If a single Hun plane crosses our lines and returns, we're wholly and utterly done. You've given us splendid help since the show began, Archie. For God's sake, keep it up to the finish, and put every machine you can spare in the sector. We're doing our best, he said. We got some more fightin' scouts down from the north, and we're keepin' our eyes skinned. But you know as well as I do, sir, that it's never an absolute certainty. If the Hun sent over a squadron, we might beat em all down but one, and that one might do the trick. It's a matter of luck. The Hun's got the wind up all right in the air just now, and I don't blame the poor devil. I'm inclined to think that we haven't had the pick of his push here. Jennings says he's doing good work in Flanders, and they reckon there's a deuce of a thrust comin' there pretty soon. I think we can manage the kind of footler he's been sendin' over here lately, but if Lynch or some lad like that were to choose to turn up, I wouldn't say what might happen. The air's a big lottery, and Archie turned a dirty face skyward, where two of our planes were moving very high towards the east. The mention of Lynch brought Peter to mind, and I asked if he had gone back. "'He won't go,' said Archie, "'and we haven't the heart to make him. He's very happy, and he plays about with the Gladys single-seater. He's always speaking about you, sir, and it'd break his heart if we shifted him.' I asked about his health, and was told that he didn't seem to have much pain. "'But he's a bit queer,' and Archie shook a sage head. One of the reasons why he won't budge is because he says God has some work for him to do. He's quite serious about it, and ever since he got the notion he has perked up amazin'. He's always asking about Lynch, too. Not vindictive, like you understand, but quite friendly. Seems to take a sort of proprietary interest in him. I told him that Lynch had had a far longer spell of first-class fightin' than anybody else, and was bound by the law of averages to be down soon, and he was quite sad about it. I had no time to worry about Peter. Archie and I swallowed breakfast, and I had a pow-wow with my brigadiers. By this time I had got through to Corps headquarters, and got news of the French. It was worse than I expected. General Peggy would arrive about ten o'clock, but his men couldn't take over till well after midday. The Corps gave me their whereabouts, and I found it on the map. They had a long way to cover yet, and then there would be the slow business of relieving. I looked at my watch. There were still six hours before us, when the Bosch might knock us to blazes, six hours of maddening anxiety. Lefroy announced that all was quiet on the front, and that the new wiring at the Bois de la Bruyere had been completed. Patrols had reported that, during the night, a fresh German division seemed to have relieved that which we had punished so stoutly yesterday. I asked him if he could stick it out against another attack. No, he said without hesitation. We're too few and too shaky on our pins to stand any more. I've only a man to every three yards. That impressed me, for Lefroy was usually the most devil-may-care optimist. Curse it! There's the sun! I heard Archie cry. It was true, for the clouds were rolling back, and the centre of the heavens was a patch of blue. The storm was coming, I could smell it in the air, but probably it wouldn't break till the evening. Where, I wondered, would we be by that time? It was now nine o'clock, and I was keeping tight hold on myself, for I saw that I was going to have hell for the next hours. 
I am a pretty stolid fellow in some ways, but I have always found patience and standing still the most difficult job to tackle, and my nerves were all tattered from the long strain of the retreat. I went up to the line and saw the battalion commanders. Everything was unwholesomely quiet there. Then I came back to my headquarters to study the reports that were coming in from the air patrols. They all said the same thing, abnormal activity in the German back areas. Things seemed shaping for a new 21st of March, and if our luck were out, my poor little remnant would have to take the shock. I telephoned to the Corps and found them as nervous as me. I gave them the details of my strength and heard an agonized whistle at the other end of the line. I was rather glad that I had companions in the same purgatory. I found I couldn't sit still. If there had been any work to do, I would have buried myself in it, but there was none only this fearsome job of waiting. I hardly ever feel cold, but now my blood seemed to be getting thin, and I astonished my staff by putting on a British warm and buttoning up the collar. Round that derelict farm I ranged like a hungry wolf, cold at the feet, queasy in the stomach, and mortally edgy in the mind. Then suddenly the cloud lifted from me, and the blood seemed to run naturally in my veins. I experienced the change of mood which man feels sometimes when his whole being is fined down and clarified by long endurance. The fight of yesterday revealed itself as something rather splendid. What risks we had run, and how gallantly we had met them! My heart warmed as I thought of that old division of mine, those ragged veterans that were never beaten as long as breath was left in them and the Americans, and the boys from the machine-gun school, and all the oddments we had commandeered, and old Blenkiron raging like a good-tempered lion. It was against reason that such fortitude shouldn't win out. We had snarled round and bitten the Boche so badly that he wanted no more for a little. He would come again, but presently we should be relieved, and the gallant blue-coats, fresh as paint and burning for revenge, would be there to worry him. I had no new facts on which to base my optimism, only a changed point of view, and with it came a recollection of other things. Wake's death had left me numb before, but now the thought of it gave me a sharp pang. He was the first of our little confederacy to go, but what an ending he had made, and how happy he had been in that mad time when he had come down from his pedestal and become one of the crowd. He had found himself at last, and who could grudge him such happiness? If the best were to be taken, he would be chosen first, for he was a big man before whom I uncovered my head. The thought of him made me very humble. I had never had his troubles to face, but he had come clean through them, and reached a courage which was for ever beyond me. He was the faithful among us pilgrims, who had finished his journey before the rest. Mary had foreseen it. There is a price to be paid, she had said, the best of us and at the thought of Mary a flight of warm and happy hopes seemed to settle on my mind. I was looking again beyond the war to that peace which she and I would some day inherit. I had a vision of a green English landscape, with its far-flung sense of wood and meadow and garden, and that face of all my dreams, with the eyes so childlike and brave and honest, as if they too saw beyond the dark to a radiant country. A line of an old song, which had been a favourite of my father's, sang itself in my ears. There's an eye that ever weeps, and a fair face will be fain, when I ride through Annan water with my bonny bands again. 
We were standing by the crumbling rails of what had once been the farm sheepfold. I looked at Archie, and he smiled back at me, for he saw that my face had changed. Then he turned his eyes to the billowing clouds. I felt my arm clutched. "'Look there,' said a fierce voice, and his glasses were turned upward. I looked, and far up in the sky saw a thing like a wedge of wild geese flying towards us from the enemy's country. I made out the small dots which composed it, and my glass told me that they were planes. But only Archie's practised eye knew that they were enemy. Bosh? I asked. Bosh, she said. My God, we're for it now. My heart had sunk like a stone, but I was fairly cool. I looked at my watch and saw that it was ten minutes to eleven. How many? Five, said Archie, or there may be six, not more. Listen, I said, get on to your headquarters. Tell them that it's all up with us if a single plane gets back. Let them get well over the line, the deeper in the better, and tell them to send up every machine they possess and down them all. Tell them it's life or death. Not one single plane goes back. Quick! Archie disappeared, and as he went our anti-aircraft guns broke out. The formation above opened and zigzagged, but they were too high to be in much danger. But they were not too high to see that which we must keep hidden or perish. The roar of our batteries died down as the invaders passed westward. As I watched their progress they seemed to be dropping lower. Then they rose again, and a bank of cloud concealed them. I had a horrid certainty that they must beat us, that some at any rate would get back. They had seen thin lines and the roads behind us empty of supports. They would see, as they advanced, the blue columns of the French coming up from the southwest, and they would return and tell the enemy that a blow now would open the road to Amiens and the sea. He had plenty of strength for it, and presently he would have overwhelming strength. It only needed a spear-point to burst the jerry-built dam and let the flood through. They would return in twenty minutes, and by noon we would be broken unless, unless the miracle of miracles happened, and they never returned. Archie reported that his skipper would do his damnedest, and that our machines were now going up. "'We've a chance, sir,' he said, "'a good sportin' chance.' It was a new Archie, with a hard voice, a lean face, and very old eyes. Behind the jagged walls of the farm buildings was a knoll, which had once formed part of the high road. I went up there alone, for I didn't want anybody near me. I wanted a viewpoint, and I wanted quiet, for I had a grim time before me. From that knoll I had a big prospect of country. I looked east to our lines, on which an occasional shell was falling, and where I could hear the chatter of machine-guns. West there was peace for the woods closed down on the landscape. Up to the north, I remember, there was a big glare, as from a burning dump, and heavy guns seemed to be at work in the Ancre Valley. Down in the south there was the dull murmur of a great battle, but just around me in the gap, the deadliest place of all, there was an odd quiet. I could pick out clearly the different sounds. Somebody down at the farm had made a joke, and there was a short burst of laughter. I envied the humorist his composure. There was a clatter and jingle from a battery changing position. On the road a tractor was jolting along. I could hear its driver shout and the screech of its unoiled axle. My eyes were glued to my glasses, but they shook in my hands so that I could scarcely see. I bit my lip to steady myself, but they still wavered. From time to time I glanced at my watch. Eight minutes gone, ten, seventeen. If only the planes would come into sight. 
Even the certainty of failure would be better than this harrowing doubt. They should be back by now unless they had swung north across the salient, or unless the miracle of miracles. Then came the distant yapping of an anti-aircraft gun, caught up the next second by others, while smoke patches studded the distant blue sky. The clouds were banking in mid-heaven, but to the west there was a big clear space, now woolly with shrapnel bursts. I counted them mechanically, one, three, five, nine, with despair beginning to take the place of my anxiety. My hands were steady now, and through the glasses I saw the enemy. Five attenuated shapes rode high above the bombardment, now sharp against the blue, now lost in a film of vapour. They were coming back, serenely, contemptuously, having seen all they wanted. The quiet was gone now, and the din was monstrous. Anti-aircraft guns, singly and in groups, were firing from every side. As I watched, it seemed a futile waste of ammunition. The enemy didn't give a tinker's curse for it. But surely there was one down. I could only count four now. No, there was the fifth coming out of a cloud. In ten minutes they would be all over the line. I fairly stamped in my vexation. Those guns were no more use than a sick headache. Oh, where in God's name were our own planes? At that moment they came, streaking down into sight, four fighting scouts with the sun glinting on their wings and burnishing their metal cowls. I saw clearly the rings of red, white, and blue. Before their downward drive, the enemy instantly spread out. I was watching with bare eyes now, and I wanted companionship, for the time of waiting was over. Automatically I must have run down the knoll, for the next I knew I was staring at the heavens with Archie by my side. The combatants seemed to couple instinctively. Diving, wheeling, climbing, a pair would drop out of the melee or disappear behind a cloud. Even at that height I could hear the methodical rat-tat-tat of the machine-guns. Then there was a sudden flare and wisp of smoke. A plane sank, turning and twisting, to earth. "'Hun!' said Archie, who had his glasses on it. Almost immediately another followed. This time the pilot recovered himself while still a thousand feet from the ground, and started gliding for the enemy lines. Then he wavered, plunged sickeningly, and fell headlong into the wood behind La Bruyere. Farther east, almost over the front trenches, a two-seater albatross and a British pilot were having a desperate tussle. The bombardment had stopped, and from where we stood every movement could be followed. First one, then another, climbed uppermost and dived back swooped out and wheeled in again, so that the two planes seemed to clear each other only by inches. Then it looked as if they closed and interlocked. I expected to see both go crashing, when suddenly the wings of one seemed to shrivel up, and the machine dropped like a stone. "'Hun!' said Archie. "'That makes three. Oh, good lads! Good lads!' Then I saw something which took away my breath. Sloping down in wide circles came a German machine, and following, a little behind and a little above, a British. It was the first surrender in mid-air I had seen. In my amazement I watched the couple right down to the ground, till the enemy landed in a big meadow across the high road, and our own man in a field nearer the river. When I looked back into the sky, it was bare. North, south, east, and west, there was not a sign of aircraft, British or German. A violent trembling took me. Archie was sweeping the heavens with his glasses, and muttering to himself, Where was the fifth man? He must have fought his way through, and it was too late. But was it? 
from the toe of a great rolling cloud-bank a flame shot earthwards followed by a v-shaped trail of smoke british or bosch british or bosch i didn't wait long for an answer for riding over the far end of the cloud came two of our fighting scouts i tried to be cool and snapped my glasses into their case though the reaction made me want to shout archie turned to me with a nervous smile and a quivering mouth i think we have won on the post he said he reached out a hand for mine his eyes still on the sky and i was grasping it when it was torn away he was staring upwards with a white face we were looking at the sixth enemy plane it had been behind the others and much lower and was making straight at great speed for the east the glasses showed me a different type of machine a big machine with short wings which looked menacing as a hawk in a covey of grouse it was under the cloud-bank and above satisfied easing down after their fight and unwitting of this enemy rode the two british craft a neighbouring anti-aircraft gun broke out into a sudden burst and i thanked heaven for its inspiration curious as to this new development the two british turned caught sight of the boche and dived for him what happened in the next minutes i cannot tell the three seemed to be mixed up in a dog-fight so that i could not distinguish friend from foe my hands no longer trembled i was too desperate the patter of machine-guns came down to us and then one of the three broke clear and began to climb the others strained to follow but in a second he had risen beyond their fire for he had easily the pace of them was it the hun archie's dry lips were talking it's lynch he said how do you know i gasped angrily can't mistake him look at the way he slipped out as he banked that's his patent trick in that agonizing moment hope died in me i was perfectly calm now for the time for anxiety had gone farther and farther drifted the british pilots behind while lynch in the completeness of his triumph looped more than once as if to cry an insulting farewell in less than three minutes he would be safe inside his own lines and he carried the knowledge which for us was death someone was bawling in my ear and pointing upward it was archie and his face was wild i looked and gasped seized my glasses and looked again a second before lynch had been alone now there were two machines i heard archie's voice my god it's the gladys the little gladys his fingers were digging into my arm and his face was against my shoulder and then his excitement sobered into an awe which choked his speech as he stammered it's it's old but i did not need him to tell me the name for i had divined it when i first saw the new plane drop from the clouds i had that queer sense that comes sometimes to a man that a friend is present when he cannot see him somewhere up in the void two heroes were fighting their last battle and one of them had a crippled leg i had never any doubt about the result though archie told me later that he went crazy with suspense lynch was not aware of his opponent till he was almost upon him and i wonder if by any freak of instinct he recognized his greatest antagonist he never fired a shot nor did peter i saw the german twist and side-slip as if to baffle the fate descending upon him i saw peter veer over vertically and i knew that the end had come he was there to make certain victory and he took the only way the machines closed there was a crash which i felt though i could not hear it and the next second both were hurtling down over and over to the earth
They fell in the river just short of the enemy lines, but I did not see them, for my eyes were blinded, and I was on my knees. After that it was all a dream. I found myself being embraced by a French general of division, and saw the first companies of the cheerful bluecoats whom I had longed for. With them came the rain, and it was under a weeping April sky that early in the night I marched what was left of my division away from the battlefield. The enemy guns were starting to speak behind us, but I did not heed them. I knew that now there were warders at the gate, and I believed that by the grace of God that gate was barred for ever. They took Peter from the wreckage, with scarcely a scar except his twisted leg. Death had smoothed out some of the age in him, and left his face much as I remembered it long ago in the Mashonaland hills. In his pocket was his old battered pilgrim's progress. It lies before me as I write, and beside it, for I was his only legatee, the little case which came to him weeks later, containing the highest honour that can be bestowed upon a soldier of Britain. It was from the pilgrim's progress that I read next morning, when, in the lee of an apple orchard, Mary and Blenkiron and I stood, in the soft spring rain beside his grave. And what I read was the tale in the end, not of Mr. Standfast, whom he had singled out for his counterpart, but of Mr. Valiant for truth, whom he had not hoped to emulate. I set down the words as a salute and a farewell. Then said he, I am going to my father's, and though with great difficulty I am got hither, yet now I do not repent me of all the trouble I have been at to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage, and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me, to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles, who now will be my rewarder. So he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. End of chapter 22 End of Mr. Stanfast by John Buchan